morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good, good. LifePoint family, uh, welcome back. It's good to see you as brothers and sisters, uh, guests. Glad you guys are here with us. If you don't uh, know me, my name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus and just want to say welcome uh, to you. And we say this to our guests every week, but if this is your first time here or you're relatively new here, I hope you'll utilize lpguest.com. The QR codes in front of you on the chairs in front of you have, will send you to this uh, resource here, lpguest.com. If you, the QR code doesn't work for some reason, just type in lpguest.com into a web browser and uh, that's got the uh, notes there for you this morning. So all the scriptures that are going to be on the screens this morning, some of the note uh, points will be there as well. There's also a guest information card if you wouldn't mind taking just a moment to fill that out. It takes about 90 seconds. We would love to connect with you before you leave today. And so take a moment and, and do that even, even now. Um, second thing I want to mention before we jump into Daniel 3 this morning. So we've got a, what's called a life team orientation coming up next Sunday. So next Sunday, 1045 in the meeting room. Uh, life team orientation or LTO is just a short class basically that talks about where you can serve uh, on a Sunday morning or throughout the week here at LifePoint as a part or a concept, in the context of our church. And so I want to just highlight something for you. Um, I was talking with Ann, our children's director, about this this week. So last Sunday... Back in the children's wing, right? We don't, we don't see this if you're in here, right? But going on last Sunday, there were 186 children and 45 leaders serving those children last week. So that's 231 folks. That, that was just last Sunday. So just think about this for a moment. We gather 52 times a year. We do that 52 times a year where there are hundreds of children and dozens and dozens of leaders. There are 150 leaders on the LifePoint Kids team. One, can we just say thanks to the LifePoint Kids team for how they serve? Um, and then secondly, some of us need to take that clapping and go right into, hey, Ann, how can I serve, right? So I just want to say, yeah, someone's clapping for that as well. Listen, God has entrusted us with hundreds of kiddos on a weekly basis. That is a wonderful privilege, and it's also a weighty, weighty responsibility that we have as the local church to come alongside and partner with parents in discipling their kiddos. So many, many of you are serving. I want to say thank you for that on the Connections team, LifePoint Kids team, on the Worship and Creative Arts team. So many are serving. But if you're here and you would call LifePoint your home and you're not yet serving, I'm going to ask you today, right, as we head in towards the final months of the year here and the close of the year, before, don't, don't wait till New Year and say, I'll do it at the New Year, right? Do it now, right? Sign up. You can sign up for today at lpguest.com or at the Life on Ohio app. Just go to the events and registration. You can sign up for LTO. I want to see you there next week at Life Team Orientation. And I would ask specifically, prayerfully consider stepping on to the kids team and just being a part of what God is allowing us to be a part of and to do. All right? If having said that, if you've got a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 3. We uh, started a series called Exiles two weeks ago. We're looking at the life of Daniel and his three friends. We're going to see his three friends today sort of highlighted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was the names they were given, right, in, uh, in, uh, in Babylon, replacing their Hebrew or their Israelite names. But the big idea is something we're going to say every single week is that faith is more about how you live than where you live. It's more about how you live and where you live. I, just to remind you of, of the context, Daniel and his three friends have had their entire lives turned upside down, right? Probably when they were teenagers around that time, their country was taken over. Babylon came in and destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah, overran it, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, 
and exiled, deported many of the best young men of their culture, including Daniel and his three friends. And they are brought to Babylon where they are. We said three things week one, right? They're re-educated, they're relocated, and they're renamed, right? Their identities in many ways stripped from them. And then they're re-educated in the service of Babylon from a Babylonian worldview for service to the king. And so the question is, can these guys, one of the questions, can these guys really live faithfully to God in the midst of such cultural upheaval? In, in the midst of such change, can these guys really live faithfully to Yahweh, to their God and their king? And the answer to that is, yes, they can. And of course, that has enormous in, uh, application for your life and for mine in the midst of the change we experience. But what we get are these key moments in Daniel's life and in these three guys' lives where we see them refusing to compromise. Moments where they show us that you can live faithfully spiritually no matter where you live geographically. All right? That you can live faithfully spiritually no matter where you live geographically. Because faith is more about how you live and who you trust than where you live. So we're going to get to Daniel 3 today and I'm just going to summarize the first few verses for you and give you the context. So King Nebuchadnezzar uh, builds an, enorm an enormous statue, right? This enormous golden idol. It's 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. It's huge. It's impressive. It's imposing. Scholars don't seem to fully agree on whether it's a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself or whether it's a statue of one of his gods that sort of represents him. And some but the point being that no matter what... It it's, it's something that is about his power and his status. And so what he does is he sets this up and he demands that all of his government officials from across the whole uh, Babylonian empire, they come in and he says, you're going to gather for the dedication ceremony. And when the band strikes up, when the music plays, I want all of you in a moment of sort of solidarity to bring the kingdom together to remind us that we're Babylon. I want you to fall down and worship the idol fall down and worship this golden statue that I've set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship it, well, he tells us here, verse 6, right? And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. You thought your workplace consequences were heavy, right? <laughs> what the consequences for non-compliance are. These are the consequences for them. Do what I say or I'll kill you. And that's not... That's not exaggeration. It was rather normal in the Babylonian and ancient culture in general. He says, bow or die. Therefore, verse 7, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, I'm going to swing back to this uh, a little bit later on, but I just want you to note I couldn't help but think that's almost like a, an anti-picture of heaven, right? It's like, or a picture of sort of an anti-heaven. And the reason I say that is, do you remember we just finished Revelation? And do you remember how Revelation finished? It's all people's languages, nations, and tribes gathered around the throne of God worshiping him. And here the language is so similar, but it's like a counterfeit. It's a parody of heaven. All languages and peoples and cultures bowing down and worshiping a giant golden statue, an idol, a false god. And I just want to say, look, if you're here and you ever wonder, like, what's wrong with us? 
What's wrong with humanity? Why, why are we so broken? Why, why all of the wars? Why all of the conflict? Why all of the, just the, the terrible sort of nature of life as we experience it sometimes? This is it. This is the fundamental problem with humanity. It's called sin. And this is a great picture of it right here. We choose consistently to worship the creation rather than the creator. Instead of giving to God what is his due and his alone, we give it to other things. The sinful, broken nature of our hearts says, I want to worship and I want to bow down to something that is not God. That's our fundamental problem. Idolatry. Now, verse 8 says, the, therefore at that time, there are a few, we're going to find out, who did not bow. Therefore at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward. These are the astrologers and the magicians, the wise men of Babylon. <clears throat> they came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, Live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So they come, they flatter the king, right? You are just the best, man. We love you. Also, you made this decree, right? And you, just to remind you, anyone who doesn't bow down, right, was supposed to die. Oh, and by the way, right, <clears throat> that verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Meshach, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. So what's happening here? These men are the men who likely have been passed over, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because of Daniel, right? They, they have been promoted. They've been given very high positions of influence in Babylon. And they're foreigners. And it would seem like those from Babylon don't like that, right? They don't like that these other guys have come in and been promoted and given uh, this position of authority, perhaps over them. And so they take it upon themselves to point out, oh, so helpfully to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, these guys, they don't follow along with what you say. They're jealous. Now, this is really, this is all pretense, by the way, right? They don't care about actually, you know, Nebuchadnezzar or his image or his power authority. They, they want these guys to be punished. They want their positions, and so now, think about this. If Nebuchadnezzar were a spiritually mature man, if he were a spiritually humble man, he would be able to see right through this. He'd be able to know exactly the moment they started talking and the moment they start, what's really going on here. They're, they're using him. In fact, we're going to see something. Note this. We're going to see something later on, right? When we get to Daniel and the lion's den, the same exact thing happens with a king named Darius. Some people say Darius, right, or Darius. But they appeal to his pride and his ego in order to try to get Daniel punished. And he falls into the trap. And it's the same thing here. They're appealing to Nebuchadnezzar's pride, his ego, his sense of his own self-importance, and his pride blinds him. And I didn't write that down, but it's probably worth you noting or writing down. Pride blinds you. Pride distorts your vision or version of reality. It causes you not to see things that are very, very obvious. Because pride makes you seem so big and everyone and everything else seems so small. Pride blinds you. He should be able to see right through this charade. Instead, because he gets his ego wounded because they appeal to his pride and his, self of, his sense of self-importance, all he sees is red. And he can't see what's going on. And wisdom and discernment just go right out the window. 
And this is what he does. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. Listen, a, a hallmark, telltale sign of somebody who's just spiritually immature, who needs some growth in these, is when they fly off the handle every time their authority gets challenged. When they fly off the handle every time they get their ego challenged, or their power, or their sense of self-importance challenged, they just fly out in rage. That's what he does here. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if, you've re if you're ready, <clears throat> when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. So he gives them a second chance, right? How merciful. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then he asks this question, which I would encourage you to highlight or underline because it's the central question of this chapter and in a lot of ways the central point of the book of Daniel. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, the, when you think about it, to be honest, sitting back and looking at the story, you go, I feel like Nebuchadnezzar should know the answer to that question already. <laughs> This is a question about power and authority and who's really in charge. And what have we seen so far in Daniel 1 and Daniel 2? Daniel chapter 1, you see Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego. These guys stand up in a sense to the king and they take on a different diet and God provides for them. And then when they stand before the king, they're found more wise than anyone else in all of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar got a front row view to the power of God. Last chapter, it was even more dramatic. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and he couldn't, he couldn't tell people it's a, what it was because it might show weakness on his part. So he demands all the wise men of Babylon come in and tell me my dream, interpret it for me. Nobody can do it. Even the wise men are like, man, nobody can. This is something beyond the gods. No man can do this. And then Daniel comes in and says, you know, God has revealed to me your dream and its interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar listens and says, man, praise God, Yahweh, that's amazing. You would think he would know the answer to this question. And yet, what did we just say? Pride blinds you. And also, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar is dealing with something you might call spiritual amnesia. Forgetting the works of God. Forgetting what God has done. And let me just pause there and say, can we really criticize Nebuchadnezzar all that much? It is easy to sit here to read it and be removed from the story and go, what an idiot. <laughs> How blind can this fool be? Right? He's already seen God work in the past. Yeah, maybe it's been a few years, but I mean, he should know the answer to that question. And yet, how many times in your life and in mine do we see God do something? Do we see God show up in a moment where we need him when we call and he answers? He moves the mountain. He's faithful to us, shows up time and again, and then when the next time of difficulty comes, we find ourselves going, where are you, God? And we doubt his faithfulness and we doubt his goodness. I mean, goodness sakes, read the Old Testament. It, if you were just looking at the Old Testament, you could, a fair summary in some ways would be the people of God being faithless and the God of the people being faithful. God showing up over and over and over, the people doubting him over. That's instructive for us. We're not meant to read the stories of the Old Testament and say, ha! 
<laughs> what idiots, right? Like, my goodness, they just don't ever believe, do they? We're meant to read the stories of the Old Testament and say, is that me? <laughs> is that the tendency of my heart is to forget the goodness and the power and the faithfulness of God? It's not just Nebuchadnezzar that deals with spiritual amnesia. It's you and it's me. And part of growing in the life of faith is learning to remember and learning to call to mind when you're in the valley, when you're in the fire, to call to mind, wait a second, he is faithful and he's good. And I know that it may not turn out the way I want it to, but I know that God is holding this situation. He's holding me in his hands. Part of growing in the life of faith is fighting against that spiritual amnesia and saying, no, I'm going to remind myself of God's past works, of his past faithfulness, and of his promises in my life. It's not just Nebuchadnezzar that deals with this. Now, verse 16, here's where we get to sort of the, the crux of the story in a sense, because the question is, what are they going to do? Right? Before they stood up, clearly, right? They stood. And I would imagine that was a bit awkward and it was a bit difficult, but it was also in a giant crowd. There's the possibility maybe people won't see us, right? Now they're standing right in front of the king with everybody looking right at them. And the king has reiterated them very clearly what they're supposed to do and what the consequences of not obeying are. Bow or die. And the question is, what are they going to do? What would you have done? What would I have done? In the face of this, let's look at their response. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I'm going to pause right there because it gets even better, but I just, that statement hit me like a ton of bricks. In essence, they look at him and say, we don't have to defend ourselves and why we did what we did, why we're about to do what we're about to do. I think part of the reason it hit me so hard is, one, I thought, how Christ-like. This is a foreshadowing of Christ's response before the cross. One of the hallmarks of his crucifixion trial is that he said nothing. He said he didn't defend himself. Pilate was stunned as all the Jewish leaders heaped abuse on Jesus and accusation after accusation after accusation. And he says, do you not have anything to say for yourself? And Jesus doesn't defend himself. That's what Isaiah said, right? He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And he said, not a word. Jesus refused to defend himself here. They were, one, that's part of why it hit me so hard. And secondly, because if I'm honest, I look at my life and say, Lord, there are times I have not done this. Times where I've been slandered, times where I've been opposed, and all I want to do is defend myself. Here's why I'm right. I want to win the argument. And listen, I'm not saying it's never, never right to defend yourself or to set the facts straight. But the reality is there are times where God's glory would be better served by us being silent. And we have to ask ourselves in that, those scenarios, do I care more about being right? My ego, my reputation? Or do I care more about the glory of God such that I'm willing to shut my mouth and entrust it to the Lord? This is a foreshadowing of Christ himself, right, before his trial. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And then this in verse 17, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, whether this life in this life or the next. But if not, <clears throat> be it known 
O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What a response. God can save us. We believe he will. And if he doesn't, we're going to obey him anyway. One commentator said it well. They said, look, faith is not believing in spite of the evidence. That's not faith. Just, well, I believe. I know there's no evidence for it. Faith is believing or obeying in spite of the consequences. It's obeying the Lord in spite of the consequences. And these guys exemplify that type of faith. They say, hey, we believe God can save us. We believe he will. I'm sure they're asking that. And if he doesn't, we're still not going to obey you because we have a higher king. And his word trumps your word. No matter what authority in this life, when they tell you to do something that is directly in disobedience to the God of the universe, you say, no, I have to obey him and not you. Now, we would love in verse 19, wouldn't we, if Nebuchadnezzar said, wow, I really respect that, guys. That's really cool. What men of principle, right? How about we just move on? Let's leave this whole affair behind us and let's move on. I'm just glad to have you guys in my kingdom. Good for you. We would love it if that worked out that way always in the workplace or in our families or in the classroom. But the bottom line is sometimes it doesn't. That's not what happens here. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The language here indicates that he's out of control. He's so mad that he's out of control. You say, why would he be out of control? Because he can't control them. And when people who are used to being in control, right, and being able to tell people what to do, and now he's got guys looking at him saying, you can't control us. If we die, we die. We have a king who's higher than you. It drives him nuts. It enrages Nebuchadnezzar. And once again, as a point of application, guys, if, if you're willing in your life, if you and I are willing to say, we're going to put Christ first, there will be some people who are very attracted to that. And they will say, man, tell me what it, it might draw them to Christ. And there will be others who will rage who will look at your refusal to bow down to the idols of culture and to just go along with the flow, and they, it, they, it will enrage them. You should expect that. When you put Christ first, you're going to go headlong at times into opposition. So he rages, and he orders, look at verse 19, he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. Alistair Begg in his little book, Brave by Faith, by the way, I never caught this. He points out, if you wanted to increase their pain, you would turn the fire down because <laughs> then they would burn slower. He said, by turning it up, all he did was quicken their death, right? It makes no sense, actually. So it might be fair to say pain or pride not only blinds you, but it makes you make dumb decisions as well, right? Say, hey, heat it up seven times. It's just going to kill them faster. But verse 20, <clears throat> he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in. And these three men fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men into the fire? And they said, true, O king. He answered and said, I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Some people have said it's the pre-incarnate Christ. Others, it's an angel. Point being is that God showed up. 
They trusted him, and he answered them. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fire furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. The three came out from the fire, and the satraps and the prefects and all of the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The point here is it is miraculous. There's no way of naturally explaining this. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins. I'm not sure if that's the right direction to go, but that's what he does, right? For no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. It's the great twist of irony at the end of the chapter, right? The wise men started off by saying, how do we get these guys killed? And in the end, they get them a promotion, right? Now, what's the moral of the story? Stand up for what you believe in, and you'll get a promotion too. (laughs) I say that jokingly because, to be honest, the reality is there are some teachers who would teach it that way. And when you hear that kind of stuff, when you hear Bible teachers saying, you know, clearly just do the right thing, and you will always get the right earthly blessing that you want. That is not true. Sometimes you will stand up for what is right and you will get the promotion. And sometimes you will stand up for what is right and you will get fired. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Trust him. So that's not the point of the story, right? Here's the point. Let me, I'm going to give you three things. There's more than this, but let me give you three. Number one, it's about idolatry. And I'm going to use this statement. Idolatry. The forms have changed, but the problem remains. The forms may have changed, but the problem remains. Last week, Derek, when he was teaching, did a phenomenal job. And he said, Babylon in the Bible represents the best the world has to offer. And guys, the best the world has to offer is counterfeit. The best the world has to offer, right? God looks at us and says, look, I am all that you need. I'm all that you truly want. Worship me. The world says, no, 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 you can find that elsewhere. But what it offers is idols. It offers counterfeit gods. And one of the greatest mistakes we can make in reading this story is to think to ourselves, man, I'm glad I don't live at a time, right, when we build little statues and figurines and then bow down and worship to them and think to yourself, I'm glad we're past idolatry. Those dumb ancients, right? Glad we're past those things. Guys, idolatry is not primarily a matter of figurines and statues. It's a matter of the heart. And the forms may have changed, but the problem remains the same. It is highly applicable for you and for me. Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, in a book called Counterfeit Gods, he says this. I'm going to quote from what he says. He talks about not Babylon, but ancient Greece. He says, The Parthenon of Athena overshadowed everything, but other deities were represented in every public space. There was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, Ares, the god of war, Artemis, the goddess of fertility and health, Hephaestus, the god of craftsmanship. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its own priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas, 
gyms, studios, or stadiums where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today, and I would add to that men, are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. In other words, right, the forms have changed, but the problem remains because idolatry is not about the little figurines and statues, it's about the heart and what is it that we're giving our worship, our adoration, our time, our talents, and our treasure. Which leads me to the second thing, right? Every single one of us has a choice we have to make. In your life, in my life, to whom or what will we bow? To whom or what are we going to bow? What are we going to worship? To whom or what are we going to give our adoration? On the one hand, you've got the God of the universe saying, worship me and me alone, put me first. And on the other hand, we've got the gods of our culture. And there are many, family, children, influence, achievement, money, people pleasing. And listen, some of those things are good things. Not all idols are bad things. Many of them are good things that we turn into God things because we give them undue adoration and worship. You've got God, you've got the cultures of our time saying, Hey, worship me, and I'll give you everything that you want. And we have to make a choice. To which am I going to bow? Which will I worship? And I'm going to say something here, and I think it'll need some explanation. In a lot of ways, we make that decision before the moment of decision comes. You say, what do you mean by that? Right? We make that decision today. And tomorrow's trials reveal today's decision. All right, let me say that again. We make the decision today about who we're going to worship and what we're going to prioritize. Tomorrow's trials reveal today's decisions and values. I think some of us think, I've thought it before, man, when that moment comes, I hope I make the right decision, right? I hope that I put Jesus first. No, you put Jesus first today. You put him first today and that's revealed when the trial comes. These guys didn't, we know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had already decided, we're going to put God first. We saw that all the way back in Daniel 1 when they were teenagers. Now when the moment comes, their faith is revealed. I, they didn't, they, I guarantee, they did not go to this uh, ceremony going, I wonder what we're going to do. I wonder if when he says to bow, we're going to bow. The decision's made. We just finished Revelation. I told you, right, the emperor had told Christians they had to go into the uh, emperor uh, temple and they had to take some incense and throw it on, uh, throw it in there and go, hey, Caesar, curious, Caesar is Lord. Just worship me a little bit, no big deal. Many Christians refused and they were murdered because of it. But my guess is they didn't go into the temple going, ah, we'll see when I get there, right? I'm not sure what I'm going to do. You make a decision now today, choose today whom you are going to serve. And the trials often just reveal that decision. It's like a, I've always, this always struck me, somebody used it like an analogy, a, a tube of toothpaste, right? They said, look, when it gets squeezed, whatever's on the inside is coming out. 
when the circumstances of your life squeeze you, whatever's on the inside is coming out. What you trust in, who your gods are. So decide today. When the trials come, do they refine us? Yes. Do they burn away the impurities? Yes. Does God give grace for those difficult moments? Absolutely. I'm not just saying by your sheer willpower, right? Have courage. God gives courage. I know that. But what I am saying is that those trials don't tend to produce something new as much as they show and they refine what's already there. So decide today. Choose today whom you're going to serve. And decide, am I going to put Christ first? Worship him and him alone. He will have my allegiance, he and he alone, or the idols, the gods, the counterfeit gods of our culture and of our time. One practical application, by the way, if you're saying, okay, Kale, I get it. Prioritize him today. What's one practical way you can do that? <clears throat> Prioritize his mission. Last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he left was he told them, go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Can I just ask you to consider in your life, where does that land in your life? How much importance do you give on a daily, weekly basis to making disciples? How much is that on your mind? Who you're investing in, who you're praying for. At the beginning of this uh, series, actually back into the Revelation series, I said, hey, during this life group term, over the 12 group weeks of this life group term, pray for one person. One person to come to know and love Jesus. Ask your life group to help you in that, right? To pray with you. But, but if we look at our lives and say, honestly, I never think about that. I never really think about who I'm discipling or how God's using me to make a disciple. We have to ask ourselves, are we really prioritizing Christ if we're not prioritizing in any way, shape, or form his mission? Prioritize his mission. And I would just up that challenge again. Hey, be praying for one person. Ask God, God, put that on my heart. And then let's pray. Let's discipline ourselves to be praying for one person who doesn't know and love Jesus and be obedient when God gives the opportunities. It's harder to drift when you're disciplining yourself to stay focused on the things that are important. And habits can help. Here's the final thing. Number three, God is the deliverer and he has already delivered. There's a tension there and I'll address that. Verse 15 was the central question, right? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is the deliverer? Who is it that's going to deliver you out of my hands? And the answer to that emphatically all throughout the book of Daniel, all throughout the Bible is God, Yahweh. He is the deliverer. And when I say he's already delivered us, here's where we get to this tension. You say, Kale, God's the deliverer. But what if he doesn't deliver me in the way that I want? Alex talked about it earlier, right? When we sang, sang those things, God, he's our provider. He does heal. But what if he doesn't heal? What if God doesn't deliver me from that cancer? What if he doesn't deliver my loved one from that sickness? What happens if we don't get the earthly? This is a tension we saw in the New Testament. James, right? Herod, at one point in time, the king, uh, the national king of the Jews, pulled James, one of the apostles, imprisoned him and then beheaded him. And he sees that the Jews like that. So he grabs Peter and puts him in prison, intending to behead him. The church prays and Peter gets delivered. It's like, what about James? <laughs> Did the church not pray hard enough? Did James not believe enough? It's the sovereignty of God, right? They had different, God had different things for them. But for both of them, what was ultimately true is that their deliverance had already happened. It happened at the cross when Christ defeated sin in the grave and delivered us ultimately that's what Colossians chapter 1 tells us. Paul, I want you to listen to this. Paul in Colossians 1 tells the church this. God, he 
has delivered us from the domain of darkness. If we've got that verse, go ahead and put it on the screens here. Colossians 1 verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And note the past tense. Not will deliver us, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So let me say it to you plainly. Brother, sister, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, the greatest deliverance has already happened in your life. And no matter what happens in this life, no matter the earthly deliverance, whether it comes the way you want it or not, the greatest fiery furnace, you have already escaped because Christ went there for you. The fiery furnace of hell itself, Jesus experienced at the cross when he took all the wrath of God against sin and he was separated from God the Father. He experienced hell in your place that you might have heaven. The greatest deliverance has already taken place. You are his and he is yours. So you can trust him. He is the deliverer. And I would close by asking this question. If you're here today and you love him, you trust him, can I just ask you to take some time to think about, right? Choose today whom you will serve, whom you will prioritize. And we've been talking about that a lot lately, but I just sense that's maybe something we need to think about. Priorities, like are we prioritizing Christ? Ask God to help you identify the idols in your life, the idols of our culture, to reject them, to repent of it, and to prioritize him instead. And then I would ask anyone here, if you're here today and you don't know and love Jesus, he died on the cross that you might be delivered. Trust him today. Let's pray. Father, I ask uh, simply, Father, but humbly, will you help us, those of us who know you and who love you, to prioritize you? And God, will you give us wisdom to identify, to recognize the idols in our culture, the idols in our hearts? whether it's money or achievement or our own families, Lord, if we've put that out of balance, God, give us wisdom to see those things, to repent of it, and then to place you first. Jesus, thank you. You went to the cross in our place. You rescued us. You've delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom. And we cannot thank you enough, but we can put you first. And God, if there's anyone here today who has not ever taken that step to trust you, to turn from their sin and to repent, God, I pray that today would be the day. And if that's you, I invite you to pray with me right now. Say, Lord, I am sorry. I ask for the forgiveness of my sin and I am trusting what you did for me at the cross, that you died for my sin, that you rose again, that I might be forgiven, that you took the ultimate fiery furnace for me, that I might be saved and have new life. Jesus, today I ask for the forgiveness of my sin. I trust you. Thank you for new life. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Uh, we're going to take communion together. So if you did not get the elements when you came in, just go ahead and raise your hand. 
and our team will be by here in a moment just to give you those elements. So just raise your hand high if you didn't get the elements. And the team will be by to give you the the team comes around, I want to give you a moment and an opportunity just to pray. If you need to repent of anything, if you need to confess anything to the Lord, maybe as we were praying, maybe as I was teaching, the idols of your heart came to mind very clearly. You could name them right now. Choose today whom you will serve. Take a moment and say, Lord, I give that to you. Help me. Help today not just to be Right, a change of mind, but a change of heart, which then leads to a change of action, change of priorities. So take some time, pray before the Lord, think about him, his cross, his resurrection, and get your heart ready for us to take communion. of us, if you're here today and you don't know and love Jesus, we're thrilled that you're here. We want you to keep coming. But we would ask you to abstain from taking communion. When you take communion, you are saying, I am the Lord's and he is mine. And I believe these things. We wouldn't want you to say something that's not true of yourself. I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. The apostle Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in remembrance of Jesus' body broken on the cross for our sin, we take it together. Verse 25 says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in remembrance of Jesus' blood shed for our sins and also in anticipation of his return, his resurrection and his return, we take it together.